I'm going to be very truthful today and say that I wish that I long for those words that I sang to be true. I sing, you are all I want. Is that really true? I want that to be true. I want the things of God and the Spirit of God to be all I long for, all, and to recognize he is all I need. But in truth, think about Eve. Eve is in the garden. By the way, people don't like to talk about original sin anymore. They don't like to think that we inherited sin from Adam and Eve. They say, well, if I was in the garden, I wouldn't have done what they did. (laughs) Nonsense. Nonsense. Eve is in this gorgeous place that has been planted and prepared and designed by God himself. And he walks with them in the garden. And then this thought comes, wait a minute, maybe there's something he's withholding from me. Boom. In that moment, she judged God. And don't we all do that? Don't we all think, wait, all I want is God and and, and, wow. So, a couple of things I want to share with you right away. Uh, I need to move this a little bit or I'm going to keep tripping on it. Um, I have to say, I'm so thankful to be here today. Thank you, Caitlin. Caitlin's still here. I thought she'd be gone. In fact, the reason I'm here is in case she goes into labor this morning. You know, we're not expecting that yet, but just in case. So that's why I'm here. Um, Last time she invited me to speak, I had a wonderful topic, the Lord's Prayer. What could be more wonderful to talk about than that? So when she asked me to, if I'd be willing to, to come back and maybe do some more teaching, I'm like, yes, that was such a great experience. I loved it. I learned so much. And Honestly, the Lord's Prayer has not been the same. I mean, it's it's taken on new meaning and depth and everything since that time. So, of course, I said yes. And then I looked. (laughs) And the first word that hits my eyeballs is wrath. And I thought, oh, no. And then I kept reading, and I thought, this is the ugliest portion of the Bible, almost, almost the ugliest. Now, why do I say almost? Have you ever read Genesis? If you have read Genesis and right on into the book of Judges, you have seen the ugliness of humanity when we exchange truth Reality for a distortion of it, for a lie. And you know, I'm so, I I was telling some of my friends here that I feel like a shaken soda can this morning. And I'm taking the 
lid off and I hope I don't spray all over you. Because this morning, this morning, okay, so I've been studying, reading, going to all my background books. In fact, my main message today, I have no message written out today. All I have, so that you don't think this is my words, I have scripture written out. I have this whole passage written written out in big letters so that I can read it. And I have all my notes scribbled on this passage. So I've been doing all this studying, and I'm thinking, God, what is it that you really want to drive home today? And it hit me this morning that our message today is a sequel to Sunday's sermon, which was about God's love. Sunday's sermon, we remember past, I hope you were there. And if you weren't there, please, please go online and, and look it up. Because Tim, Pastor Tim unfolded the parable of the loving father with the two prodigal sons in a way that I just, it became more alive to me than ever. And this morning it hit me that this section of scripture is Paul's letter to the older brother. Now, I hope that becomes clear as we go through this. The first thing I want to address is this topic of wrath. When you read it, it makes you, it, it's revolt, it, it gives you a bit of ugh, revulsion. Because, why? Because we know what human, earthly, sinful wrath looks like. We've experienced it. I hope only to a limited extent, although if you had a a father or a mother or a teacher or someone who was a raging drug abuser or alcoholic, and some of you have experienced this, so I don't want to make that small in any way, but you've experienced what the vengeful wrath looks like, and it's horrible. That is not the wrath revealed from heaven. Remember, there's a difference. But it's very important to realize that the wrath revealed from heaven, the the word in Greek used for it is orge, which is a very strong word. It conveys extreme emotional response. It can involve grief. It can involve pain. It can involve anger of the righteous kind. Have you ever, I want you to think for a moment in your life, if you have ever experienced, and I I think you have, but even in a limited way, have you experienced what righteous anger is? Let me just ask, is there anybody in your life that you love If there's anyone in your life that you love, you have experienced what happens when there's a threat to that love. Especially, don't you feel yourself enraged inside when you see evil abuse toward 
innocence. Innocent animals. I don't know why. I think maybe that gets us so severely. Or, or little babies or little children when, when evil abuse comes against them. Something rises up inside. But especially if there's an attachment. I'll never forget the reaction I felt inside when I thought a boy in the playground was abusing my son. I thought, Mother Bear! <laughs> you know, just, just, I just, you know. Now, mind you, in my fleshly response, I think I wanted to throttle that kid. But in my righteous response, I'm reacting to a threat to something that I really love, and that means a strong response. So I want you to realize that God's wrath from heaven is not a vengeful, angry, frothing at the mouth, wicked kind of wrath. It's holy wrath. It's a response, a powerful emotional response to a threat toward what he loves, and that would be eternal fellowship with us. He want, He made us for eternal fellowship with us. And so he created people, he created humanity, and humanity said, well, I... Th- we, we think we need something a little different. You know, a little more. We want, we want to know what you know. We want to be like you. Remember, that was Satan wanted Eve to think about what it would be like to know what God knew. And so she fell into the trap. And then, of course, from there you see, honestly, this first paragraph Actually, all the way through to the end of of verse of, of chapter one, you see the book of Genesis. You see what happens when people turn away. Now, here's a question for you: If you have your, I just if you have your Bibles open, you might want to circle or or emphasize some key words in this text. But let me just ask: Can you walk away from this text and think that a response to the knowledge of God in creation isn't important? Where did, where did the trouble start? It said people knew. How did they know that there was a God? How are they without excuse? And this applies to today. How is it that people are without excuse for rejecting the truth about God? Now, let's quickly say a couple of things. Number one, knowing there's knowing and there's knowing. And it's especially vivid in Hebrew and I think also in Greek that you can know It's really interesting. Two different words are used here for knowing God. There's knowing God personally. Like, like I know Caitlin. We've talked. We've met. I love her. We've interacted. I know her. Now, I don't even know her a fraction as well as, as some of you do and as her husband does. 
Her husband knows her in an intimate way that's way beyond. But even before I knew Caitlin, I knew of her. I knew that she existed. I saw her name. I know she had a role at this church. So there are different kinds of knowing. So I want you to realize that this this passage, some people have used this passage to take us off the hook in terms of our gospel mission globally. We have still a responsibility to help people know God personally, know him in that deep, intimate way, not just to know that he's there and that he's holy and righteous and that he deserves worship. That much he has made plain in the creation. So if people try to, I, I, my, the ministry that I'm involved in, we run into people all the time. Well, if God really wanted to make himself known, why doesn't he show himself to us? Hello? He did. <laughs> he has. He does. He shows himself every day. In a sense, he holds this universe together. So there's no excuse for rejecting the existence of God and the fact that we owe him nothing but bowing down before him. And that's what we sing about, too. There's a day coming when all of us who remain not under his wrath, but under the cross, where the wrath landed, they, we will be saved. Now, I'm getting ahead of myself because this chapter is written to the big brother. And I hope that you can identify with the big brother, the older brother in the parable as you, as you read this. So that's kind of a big picture thing. The other big picture thing I want you to get today is that the gospel isn't the gospel unless wrath is real. If wrath isn't part of love, then why did Jesus have to die for us? So ponder that. Is the gospel the gospel without wrath? Because the good news is only good news if there's also bad news. And that bad news is separation from God, separation from all that he is. So I also want to clarify something that is really important today. Some of you, and I I read the prayer requests, and I mentioned this to the ladies earlier. I read the prayer requests, and I pray over the prayer requests that come in on Sunday, as many of the other, all of the other elders do. And I am concerned. One of the things I thought of when I, I saw the text today and I read the prayer requests, I thought, I want to make sure that everyone here understands that what you're going through, the trials, the tribulations, the difficulties that you're facing, the losses, the pain, the sorrow, the what feels like and looks like injustice, is not the wrath of God 
against you. You understand? That is not God's wrath against you. That's the fallout of living in a fallen world. Remember when the disciples asked, they asked Jesus about this. It's like, wait a minute. When the Tower of Siloam fell down and crushed all those people, or this past weekend, when that guy opened fire at the ballroom where the people were dancing and having a wonderful time celebrating the new year and enjoying it. Did that happen because of their sin? And what did Jesus say? No. No, that's, that, those people weren't more, more sinful than anyone else. That's not why they went through loss, why they suffered loss, why they died. That's not it. So please, please never think that what you do in your Christian life is a way to appease God's wrath so that nothing bad will happen to you. I've heard people say this. I think I've said it myself if I'm going to be really truthful. Sometimes something happens that I think shouldn't happen. You know, I get in a car crash or whatever, and I think, did I have my devotions today? (laughs) Have you ever had that silly moment where you think that somehow doing the right thing is going to protect you from any difficult thing that happens? I know, it's just the silly way we think. In fact, Catherine, you brought this out this morning. We look at the news, we look at what's happening in the world, and I just thought, this: how often I ask the question, has the world gone mad? And then I looked at this text and I went, oh yeah, it has. <laughs> the world has gone mad. That explains so much of what we see in the news. We've exchanged the truth of God and of God's love and provision for a lie. We haven't honored him as the provider, and we haven't followed his ways. We haven't obeyed or lived according to his ways. So I love it, those two words, that in ungodliness and unrighteousness, that's our vertical relationship has been messed up. And when that's messed up, so is our horizontal relationship. Both things are covered in this passage of Scripture. So moving on, the, the message that I got from the, the, from the story, I'm still going to call it the prodigal son story just because I'm so habituated to calling it that. But think about this for a minute. Think of the heart of the father when the younger son came to him and said, give me my inheritance. I want it now. What did the father recognize already and have confirmed to him in that moment? What do you think he felt? And how did he express how he felt? Did he say, you idiot, what are you, are you crazy? You know that's not what we do. Are you that ungrateful and that rebellious? Get out of here. 
He did not respond that way. He responded in righteous wrath, as you see repeated again and again and again in this passage of Scripture. Just as the Father responded to the Son, what did he do? He gave it. What does it say? I I underline all the times in this passage that says, and God gave them over. Remember what Pastor Tim said on Sunday? God's love does not coerce. Have you ever seen a, a guy try to capture a gal by coercing her to stay in the relationship and not leave? How well does that work? <laughs> it does not work. It does not work any, any more than the son. The father in, this, in the parable represents God. In his wisdom, he understood the heart of his son was wild and unruly and unsatisfied and not prepared to humbly be part of his father's household. That is not how the father wanted this young son to end up. So what was his best hope? To say, no, you can't have it and you can't leave. Or to say, all right, son, here it is. Knowing what would happen, but also knowing it's the son's best chance to come to his senses. He has to experience something. He has to experience wretchedness. Which brings me to the song we sang on Sunday. Do you remember the song? I actually got to sing it in the theater in New York City during a performance or at the close of a performance of the stage production of Amazing Grace. And most of you know the story of Amazing Grace. How a slave driver, slave shipmaster, recognized finally his wretchedness and bowed before God. And at the end, the production was so effective at showing the grace of God that at the end of the production, the audience this secular audience in a secular theater in New York stood to its feet and with the cast, all the cast members came out on the stage and that whole theater sang Amazing Grace. Now, mind you, it was I had chills. It was so spine-tingling. But I thought about the word wretch that saved a wretch like me. How many of us in that audience, and I include myself, really grasp our wretchedness? If you're the big brother, like I was, the older brother in this parable that we studied on Sunday, I did not feel like a wretch when I was growing up. 
In fact, I was wishing I had one of those dramatic testimonies of people who had a horrible life. They were like the prodigal, horrible life. And they came back, and you could see this dramatic transformation. And I thought, man, if I had a story like that, I could be used by God to bring people to faith in him. But I'm this good little girl, you know. I was raised to be a good girl. Now, thank God, and again, the Holy Spirit, all praise be. When I was five years old, I had a moment of realization of my wretchedness. I had an older brother. (laughs) Do I need to say any more? Probably not. But I also had a, a mother and a father and a grandmother who loved Jesus. So I knew what love looked like. I knew what love behaved like. But I knew and I loved my brother. I, was, I just always wanted to be with him. I probably pestered him to death following him around. But there were times I wanted to do bad things to him, okay? I wanted him to get in trouble at least, you know? Come on, make sure he gets punished. So suddenly when I was five, I felt a moment of wretchedness of, oh no, I know I'm supposed to love him, but I don't. There are times when I hate him. And my spiritually sensitive mom saw this expression and this feeling of wretchedness that I was walking around with that day and asked me, thank you, Jesus. She asked me, what's troubling you? And I don't know that I even could articulate it, but she asked me if I wanted Jesus to come in and give me a clean heart and give me his love and his power to obey. And I'm like, yes, yes. So I prayed, and to the extent that I understood my wretchedness that day, thank God he was faithful to come in. And I know that he entered my life and has walked with me ever since. So talk about someone who has no excuse for the things that I did and thought later on in life. But honestly, if, you, if you're taught all through Sunday school and all through your childhood to be good, be good, be good, and here's how you be good. You do this. You come to Sunday school. You learn your memory verses. You don't swear at people. You don't smack people when you feel like smacking them. You, don't, you, know, you obey the rules. You obey the laws. You're a good citizen. You start to feel like you can't identify anymore with that wretchedness. And it's so important that we be able to identify with that wretchedness. So that's part of what's happening in this chapter. You see the unfolding of all these evils one at a time. First, you know, this also helps us understand what's going on in the lives. We, we live in a time of such debauchery, let's face it. It's just everywhere. It, it was... It's almost like it was in the days of Noah. You kind of expect that flood to be coming because it's so awful. And all this gender identity stuff, all this 
it's not just that there's all this wicked sex, but it's happening even among Christians, and we're just kind of looking at it, and, well, people will be people, and you can't expect. I've had Christian friends say that they, they gave condoms to their sons because, you know, you can't expect them to not have sex. I mean, I, I was like, really? <laughs> so uh, there are all these these crazy thoughts out there today or, you know, just, well, well, we won't even go into all of it because we don't need to. We don't need to. We've seen it. It's here. It's all around us. But here in the text is the explanation for it. And if we understand the explanation for it, we'll know how to love the people, how to reach out to the people who are caught up. Now realize that the first thing that happened, verse 21, it says, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Some of the light, Jesus is the light. We talked about the light, the Holy Spirit's light. Some of it was shadowed, darkened in their minds. But that futility, what do you do if the thing you're, that's supposed to fulfill you or that you think is going to fulfill you doesn't? You try, well, more. I, I, it's not working. I need, I need more. I, it's just because I don't have enough. I just need more. So futility of thinking leads to this kind of behavior, this appetite for more that you think is going to satisfy. And then when it doesn't satisfy, well, now you have to reach a little farther and you have to do something a little more bizarre, a little more forbidden, and maybe you'll feel alive. So futility happens, but God let them experience the futility because they traded out God's truth for a lie. And then there's this downward spiral from verses 26 through down through 28. What you see happening, and this is what we see happening in our world today, you do enough evil. You say no, like Pharaoh did, again and again and again. And what happens to the conscience? Remember, this chapter tells us that everyone has a conscience. In fact, it's even emphasized later in the chapter that even those who don't have the law, at times they do what's right because they know in their conscience what's right. But what happens if you repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly say no to God and keep exchanging his truth and his goodness for something else, any replacement, then your conscience gets so dull that you don't even hear its voice. You can almost kill it. In fact, let's face it, when, when you reach a point of reprobation and there's a point uh, in which chapter, oh yes, later in, in the chapter where he says, oops, sorry, you know, they, they were no longer able to, to respond to anything good. That's, that's what you call reprobation. So, interestingly, there's a difference between the old world before 
Jesus in the world since Jesus in the world before. And you need to know this because people will say, oh, the God of the Old Testament was vengeful and the God of the New Testament is so loving and gracious. No, 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 no. There's a difference between the Old Testament world and the New Testament world, between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. In the Old Testament, there were times when the whole of society became reprobate. And when that happened, and reprobate means no possibility to respond. We see that in Pharaoh. Pharaoh became reprobate. He could no longer respond to God. So you see it in, do you remember the, the flood? Okay, God acted at the time of the flood because the world had become so reprobate that if he hadn't cut out the malignancy, the entire human race would have been wiped out. So he had to act very dramatically there. Not He didn't wipe out everyone and start over. He could have, but that was never his plan. It was never his plan. He wanted free will beings. He wanted love because love requires free will. So he took that out just like a surgeon removes the malignancy. And then it happened again. Do you remember reading the story of Lot and his family in in Sodom and Gomorrah? I mean, that's a horrible picture. I've never, I've seen evil and I've seen pictures of it or illustrations of it on the news, but I've never seen evil to that extent. But notice, God had to wipe out Sodom and Gomorrah, removing Lot, who had already, tell me, Lot hadn't been influenced by his environment when those people came and he said, here, take my daughter. That's a horrible story. I hate that story. It's so ugly. But that tells you that we're God's people, people who are Now, again, they weren't under grace. The Holy Spirit had not been poured out yet. The salt had not been poured out on the earth. So there are times in the Old Testament that are not replicated in the New Testament. And when they are, that's when all things will come to an end, when the full number of those who will receive his grace have have received it the end will come when the full number of those who ultimately, finally reject him come. That's when his judgment will come. Which brings me to a point. There are so many points here. Oh, God, forgive me. The spray. I can feel the spray coming. I have to hold back. I have to hold back. Um, Have you ever met people who struggle with the idea that this, this wrathful God sends, sends people to hell or to eternal damnation or to judgment. How is it possible that a loving God... You get this, this argument from atheists if you, if, if you interact with them, or maybe even from your own kids. I remember my sons struggling with this question. If God is love, what about this? How does this happen? And here's the... This, this chapter tells us, this chapter tells us how this happens. He lets them have, remember God doesn't coerce. 
God refuses to coerce because love cannot and does not coerce. So God never sends anyone to hell. He simply allows people to have what they have chosen, which is life totally apart from God, from our good, loving, and righteous, and truthful God. So don't ever let anyone trip you up on that argument. Just remind them. People know what they're doing when they reject God. Pharaoh knew what he was doing when he rejected the message that Moses was bringing. He hardened his heart, and God finally said, Okay, you want a hard heart? Here it is. So back to us again and the brother. How is it that God can say to us, after describing all this horror, all this this misbehavior, this, this horrific immorality and debauchery and all that, the whole, uh, Paul's whole audience, the, the Gentile Christians and the Jewish Christians, they're, they're with him and they're going, yes. And I think this came out in our meeting earlier this morning with some of the leaders One of the ladies pointed out that we just love to get ourselves into an us versus them setup. We just look out at the world and say, look how bad they are, how bad it is. And we set ourselves up. We're the insiders. We're the good people. We're the church folks, right? We're the good Christians. We're not like those people. So it's offensive when we read here that where he turns and he says, you know, you who judge, you're you're passing judgment. You know these people, what they do is wrong. But he says, you do the same. And your, your inside says, no, I do not do the same. I don't commit all those sins that he just described. And the answer, he says, wait a minute, maybe not the actions, but where's your heart? What's your heart attitude? If you even judge by saying, you know that's wrong, and suddenly he, he catches his readers right here. They're all ready to agree with him. Yeah, look how awful the world is. Look how bad people have become. And he, he said, okay, do you see, do you see yourselves? As soon as you pass judgment, you realize that you're fully aware of right and wrong. Do you ever willfully violate what's true and what's right? Do you ever knowingly exalt yourself, your desires, your wants, above what I want for you? There's so much to think about here. This is an, a call to us. Like to the, to the brother, the older brother, he was like, look, I'm, I'm, I've been here every day. I'm the good guy. Here you are, Father, celebrating over this bad, rotten kid of yours. And I'm so good. I'm so good. And notice, he's outside. 
And the father's letting him ask. I love it. Tim ended on this. The father did not. He invited him back in, back into the celebration. He invited him to back in, come back in. But he didn't coerce him to come back in. He let him stand there in that moment. And I think that's why the story ends at that moment. Because he's asking us to ask ourselves, are we counting on our behavior, our good behavior, to get the blessing of the Father, to experience the true life of a fellowship with God himself? Let's face it, we all need to daily recognize what a gift we've begun. This is where the gospel really hits us. We have been given this gift. Now, mind you, we haven't been told that. We're not in chapter 3 yet. We're not in chapter 4 yet. There's so much. This is so hard to stop here because the good news comes. The good news is coming, folks. But God wants us to pause for a minute. Just like the brother had to pause and ask himself and identify with what was really going on inside of him. So that's where I'm going to leave us today. I think you're going to have some wonderful discussions with your groups today. I hope you will participate in those group discussions because this is such a powerful portion of scripture. And again, even though it appears ugly, The ugliness is the ugliness of sin. The wrath is not an ugly wrath. It's a gift of love. It's a true heart reaction of love to the threat against what God loves. And that's us. All right. I'm going to quick word of prayer and send you off to your groups. Father in heaven. Oh, there's so much you want to show us in your love because you really, really deeply want to have a relationship with us, which is mind-boggling when we think about it. So thank you for the gospel. Thank you for challenging us with the truth. Thank you that your love is so strong that it includes wrath. But we especially thank you that you directed that wrath that belongs to us at your own son. And we stand today, the only way we stand before you today is under the cross of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.